Well, amen and amen. That's encouraging to my heart. Is it to yours this morning? Well, praise the Lord. We're going to turn to Judges chapter 8 this morning. If you have your Bibles with us, Judges chapter 8. We'll recall from last week that Gideon had did what the Lord had said, and he whittled down his army to these 300 men. He went upon the Midians for battle. His men obeyed Gideon. His plan with the clay pots, with the torches, with the trumpets worked. They yelled, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And when the Midianites heard this, the Lord turned every man's sword against his comrades, securing his soon-to-be victory for Gideon and his men. The point that we pointed out last week, it wasn't Gideon's work, it wasn't his skillful tactics, it wasn't uh, his cunning deception of the 120,000 men, but it was the Lord and the Lord alone that set every man's sword against his comrade. The army fled, they were pursued, Gideon calls upon the men of Israel to come and help, help capture the pursuing men and to kill the princesses, princes. Chapter 8 picks up here with one of those many tribes that were called upon to help finish off the enemies. They are the men from Ephraim, the Ephraimites. They are particularly upset that they were not invited to the big battle, the main battle. They feel like they're getting second fiddle, like they were called in for the mop-up work. So resentment and accusations will begin to fly within the community, and Gideon will seek to smooth things over for everyone. After this, we will see the capture and the killing of the kings of, the Midi- of Midian. Previously, it was the princes. Now it's the kings, Zeba and Zalmanah, along with the breaking down of Gideon's relationships with many of the tribes of Succoth and of Penuel. Succoth, I'll make reference to, this means a place of booths or tents, and it's located along the eastern shore of the Jordan River. Uh, Pastor Scott would be disappointed that I don't have a map to show you exactly where Succoth is, but to the east of the Jordan River, on the west and east, two sets of mountain ranges, they're in the plains on the eastern side of the river, living in tents or booths. This Succoth should not be confu- confused with the first stopping place of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. There is another Succoth that is located near Egypt's border. Succoth here was under Israelite control. It was taken from King Heshbon and allotted to the tribe of Gad. We'd see this by Moses in Joshua chapter 13, verse 27. As we read through the first 21 verses together, we will do well to keep in our minds as we read through that God alone judges the heart and God alone will sustain. Stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning, Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight out against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? Abizer is Gideon's legacy, lineage. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do that's in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he says this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and his 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the men who follow me, or the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give you 
bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth did and had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmanah were in Kakor with their armies, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the armies, for the armies felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmana fled, and he pursued them and captured these two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmana. He threw the rest of the armies into a panic, and he threw Verse 13, and Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, behold, Ziba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmana already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, took the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he taught the, the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them I would, alive, I would not kill you. So he said to his son Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still just a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent or ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Praise the Lord, you may have a seat. We're, about, we're so glad that we have our children with us here this morning, and they can join us for the services over the summer. Today's sermon is titled, Disunity in Community. So you can write this sentence down. Disunity destroys community. Disunity destroys community, and it turns those closest to us against one another. In verse 1 of chapter 8 here, we see the men of Ephraim are angry because they were not called upon to hew to fight the huge battle against the 120,000 Midianites. But Gideon had already been, but God had already told Gideon to reduce his forces down to these 300 men. He originally had 20 or 30,000. Now he was, he was supposed to reduce it down to 300. And I want you to notice right off the bat here as we start in chapter 8 that something has seemed to change between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Gideon begins to leave God out of his conversation here. He makes no reference immediately here to God to reduce, that God had told him to reduce his armies as a reason that he might not have called upon the Ephraimites. This is soon to be a common theme. He will continue to leave God out. Regardless, they resented Gideon, not knowing all the facts that God had instructed him to reduce his armies. No wonder he didn't call upon more people. And we don't even know if they would have come if he would have called upon them. But now that the big battle is over, and maybe in their mind the, the, the exciting part of the battle is over, they're going to surely accuse him fiercely based on their opinions. 
In verse 2, Gideon tactively answers the rebuke with some flattery here. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Saying that this work was only a small scale to what the Ephraimites offered as the largest army in Israel, and then he calmed them down. Let me read verses 2 and 3 again. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? And God gave into your, has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? He's saying, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? You remember from last week that Gideon's story was bracketed with this wine press. He's puffing up the Ephraimites, saying that the gleaning of the grapes, which was the gathering of all the grapes, which is the story here of killing uh, of the princes as the, they flee from battle, is much, bur- or much more noteworthy than the gathering of all, or the harvest of all the grapes. What he's saying is that the gleaning of the grapes, the killing of the princesses, is more important than the harvest of the grapes, which is the Lord setting the army against itself after they smashed the clay pots. So this quote-unquote harvest of the grapes positions the Ephraimites as the ones to be recognized. Well, you're the ones that could pursue and kill and killed the fleeing princes. And he puffs them up and their anger subsides. Gideon does in verse 3 here give God the glory for the delivery of the army and the princesses, princes. But Gideon's actually saying that the victory of the 120,000 because he's trying to puff up the Ephraimites, the victory of the 120,000 wasn't as great as your work of the killing of the princes. And even more so, neither of these two are nearly as important as the things that I have done to let this all happen. You'll notice as we continue through this chapter, the Lord and his work is less and less referred to, and more and more of Gideon's action is on the forefront. Gideon is continuing in his pursuit. God hasn't instructed him to continue, but he will continue his pursuit and his destruction here without the Lord's blessing. So we will see, this is the first section I'm bad at clicking these, God alone judges the heart, and now uh, we will see that God alone sustains verses 4 to 21. Previously, the Lord was always the, the true victor of the battle. Now Gideon pursues a second military campaign to wipe out all of the Midianites, perhaps for his own glory here. Gideon's kingdom building is slowly shifting from God's kingdom building to his own. Not only do the Ephraimites judge Gideon's heart, we may be quick to judge Gideon's heart based on his action. But remember, God alone judges the heart. God alone sustains. Verses 4 through 6, we see that Gideon's men are pursuing and exhausted. So he pleads in verse 5 with the men of Succoth for some bread, and they scoff at him, verse 6. They say, are the hands of Zeba and Zomna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? More literally, are the physical palms of them in your hands already? And so this alludes to ancient Near Eastern practices of cutting the wrists off and delivering the hands as a way of tallying the number of casualties in the battle. Gideon says, verse 7, fine. You don't want to help when I return, and when I do conquer the kings, I will return and I will teach you a lesson I will flail your flesh with thorns. The men of Succoth here obviously didn't believe in Gideon, didn't believe that he could do this, didn't believe in his 300 men. They don't think he can do the job, so they refuse him hospitality. This shows the beginning and the breakdown of this disunity in this tribal community 
And Gideon now comes back with anger. Only a little while ago, he was trying to be diplomatic. Now he's just resulting to anger against this treachery. His temper is getting shorter. Gideon may actually be stepping beyond what the Lord had promised here, for up until this point, the Lord had not promised Ziba and Zamana into his hands. So he seems to use Yahweh's name presumptuously, assuming that the Lord will support this violent, excessive battle plan. He's even turning against his own people here. First, the men of Succoth for their response to him. Now, verses 8 and 9, the men of Penuel. And he responds to them the same way for what they did. Gideon's anger is burning against them for their, their obstruction of his plan. Gideon seems to be getting crazed. Look back at verse 5. He even puffs himself up when he says, Please give loaves of bread to my men, for they are exhausted. But notice how he says, but I am the one that is pursuing. They are weary, I am not. Gideon has a personal agenda here, and he will accomplish his goal no matter who is exhausted or who gets in his way. He says in verse 9, he will return in peace to Penuel, which is ironic because he does not. He returns and tears down their tower and kills the men. He is a man with war and kingdom building on his mind. Moving through to verses 10, 11, and 12, these kings are hiding out at Kakor. That's a watering hole near the east of the Dead Sea. And they have an army of about 15,000 men that are left. And we see here at verse 10 that Gideon goes up and he attacks. Verse 11 and then 12, they are captured and the armies scatter in panic. Much like the Lord's last battle, when he dispersed the 120,000, The Lord led the fleeing, the Lord led the pursuing, and the Lord led the capturing. Now we have Gideon with no reference to the Lord, and he's doing, uh, leading the fleeing, the pursuing, and the capturing of the enemies. And the text is very purposeful to point that out to us. So see verse 11, it says, and Gideon went up. Verse 12, and he pursued, and he threw the armies into a panic, Verse 13, then Gideon returned. Gideon is not positioned as equal with his men anymore, but he alone, he alone, all third person, masculine, singular pronoun, verbs, he alone finished them off. God can keep his tactics, God can keep his power, for I, Gideon, am the victor. Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. This is not Mount Harry's or Timnah Harry's that we read about in chapters 1 and 2. Moreover, Harry's, this isn't even a, a place. It's an unknown name, which really means in Hebrew, the sun, S-U-N, the sun that's in the sky. So if we put that into the verse here, we would see that he returned from battle by the ascent of the sun or the rising of the sun, most likely referring to that he had also attacked these men at night like he did before. So he remembers the tactics that he was using. Verse 14, Gideon captures this young man of Succoth. Through skillful uh, interrogation, he gets the names of all 77 ruling elders. This way, Gideon can punish those specifically that were in uh, uh, betrayal against him and not helping him. So this is kind of a humble thing. This is kind of a nice thing for him to do, not to kill everybody in that town, but that even is soon a disappearing trait for Gideon. 
In verse 15, he goes to Succoth and he taunts back at them the same thing that they taunted him in verse 6. And he takes them into the wilderness. In verse 16, he teaches them a lesson. Uh, my dad taught me a lot of lessons. I can change an alternator in the car. I can change brakes. I can do sway bars. I can do tires and all this work. I can build model trains. I can serve in my church. I can seek to raise a godly family. All lessons that he taught me. But when I did something wrong, and he found out about it, and he grabbed me by the arm and said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. That was not a lesson that I was eager to learn at that moment. So Gideon does that to these men. And by the pain of the briar, he ironically returns not in peace to Penuel, tears down their tower, and hurts the men, punishes them. Gideon, even though the battle is won, has not yet given up the taste for blood, and he seeks further revenge. We'll come back to the briars in a few minutes, but I want to make a side note here about this young man at Succoth. He wrote down the names of the leaders in my ESV translation in verse 14. I think the ESV does a great job translating that as the writing down of the names, as most translations do. You might have the original King James versions, the American Standard, or English Revised, and they would use the word described the 77 leaders instead. The writing down here is excellent because it's really showing an important acknowledgement to the development of the alphabetical script showing the advance of this civilization. What it shows is that there is a specific knowledge of being able to write down by name 77 different people, give it to somebody else, and then be able to go and use it. This is where we often talk at Eastwood Oak here about really spending time on chapters and topics like this because it shows the archaeological and the historical truth that we can find in the Bible. There is authenticity and there is historicity that we can focus on. So we can date back to written scripts of Jerubbabel, even from times at this that were written out. We can identify these things as true in God's word. Gideon is getting mad with, with war. He takes the briars and he tears at them or threshes and flails them with the briars. So perhaps this means one of, one of two things. One, he takes this threshing sledge, which is a large set of planks that's attached that has stones and things, and you would drag over the grain and get, to get the wheat to come out. Or it's a flail, which is a tool that when you hang wheat over such a wine press, you can actually beat the, the, the wheat and the grain will come out of it. So either way, it is a gruesome and a horrific punishment as he takes the thorns and the briars and he whips them and flails them with it. There are some agricultural metaphors here. Uh, you might remember from chapter 6, verse 11, that Gideon once, once threshed wheat in fear. Now he threshes men with anger and with vengeance. He once tore down the altar of Baal and the Asherah, and now he tears down the tower of men in Penuel. Once God left it, led the effort, now it is a human-led massacre. No longer the glory for God, but the glory for man. You might recall here this poor son of Joash, that is Gideon. Well, now look at him. Once a faithful man, now faithless and on the warpath. God sustained Gideon when he was in doubt. God even sustained him through the answering of all of his tests. 
But now the tables are turned, and anyone who doubts Gideon will die, and he teaches the men in Penuel a lesson. So now that his own people have been attacked and they are gone, he turns his back, or he turns back to the captured kings in verses 18 through 21. I'll read that again. Verse 18, then he said to Zeba and Zalmana, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. And Zeba and Zalmanah said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as is the man, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Gideon slaughters the Midianite kings, Midianite kings here, because they're beginning to question his manhood. Again, he's not being directed by the hand of God here to do this thing. It's being directed by Gideon's hand. He questions them on where his brothers were. Well, perhaps they didn't know who Gideon's brothers were, but they were going to be killed anyways. Verse 18, as you are, so were they. Perhaps they didn't realize it was his brothers, but they have an imminent death that is about to face them. In verse 19, we see that Gideon has the audacity to bring the divine back into play here. He says, as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. I have to respond, and and I'm saying to myself, no, Gideon, don't say this. I think you're mad with anger and with war, and up until now, God hasn't been playing a role in this massacre. So this would then be an example of Gideon breaking the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, Deuteronomy 5, 11, he's using God's name to justify his worldly work, actions, and vengeance. Gideon's desire for power and revenge is all-consuming. So this is a suspicious use of God's name for nothing that he's done recently has given any evidence to, to, to think that God would want him to do this or God has asked Gideon to do this. So Gideon returns blood for blood and he kills them preferably by his youngest son here, Jether. But he was afraid, so then Gideon does the work himself. So this killing of a foreign enemy who's in power by a young man of someone else that was defeated by in, or from in power would be an honor to be able to kill a young man to kill a king who's in captivity. So it would have been fittingly indicative to the culture and the time that he would call upon his son to do the honor of killing at dishonor of the invading enemies. But Gideon's not worried that his son is scared and young. Gideon was once scared and young, but not anymore. He rises up and he kills the Midianite kings. Interestingly enough, the kings also kind of welcome it. Rise yourself and kill us. They know that Gideon, being a skilled warrior with the sword, if he chooses so, would offer a quick death as a warrior versus the unskilled hand of a youth who perhaps could not swing a sword very well and could perhaps lead to a bludgeoning, slow death. Gideon kills them. He takes their crescent ornaments, items that are only mentioned in Isaiah 3, verses 18. But crescent ornaments would make sense. Archaeologists have found these crescent moon-shaped ornaments all throughout the Holy Land. 
the Baal gods are gods of the storm and the weather. So knowing that the invading enemies had these crescent-shaped ornaments would make sense. God alone here sustains. But God alone isn't doing the work because Gideon is seeking to do it on his own. Gideon is seeking his own kingdom building, putting to shame and death all of those around him. Let's read the next section, verses 22 to 28. And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us and your son and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings of his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered him, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak. Every man threw in in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings, that which he requested, was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were there, that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subsued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the day of Gideon. We see here that Gideon is refusing this invitation for kingship. But we've already seen how much Gideon has left God out of the picture during his recent rampage. And due to that fact, we'll assume here that this is sort of a couched acceptance. Oh, not me, not my son, not my grandson, but God rules over you. He seemingly uses God's name here when he wants to build up his own kingdom. Because he turns around in verse 24 and he doesn't take it. He's ready now to to head home. But then he does all the things that a conquering king would do. He takes all of the spoils. He collects the golden earrings, the crescent ornaments from the camels, verse 21. He collects the 1,700 shekels of gold and a bunch of other spoils. All these uh, shekels of gold, about 40 pounds of gold today. That's over a million dollars. Gideon is sure acting like a king, just as many other kings before him would have done. He's collecting all the royal jewelry, all the remnants. He's building an ephod oracle, that, and he'll soon, in the next set of verses, be collecting lots of wives, building a harem, naming one of his sons a king. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. Gideon obviously does not attempt to take the formal role of a king. But we see in the next section, as he returns home, he took away all the rewards of being a king. All the glory with none of the work. In verse 27 here, Gideon uh, makes this ephod and he puts it up into the city. This was really familiar to me when I was reading it because it reminded me of the golden calf that Aaron made from the earrings of the Egyptians. Both items made for pagan worship here after the Lord provides a miraculous deliverance of Israel. This ephod is pictured as a priest's royal breastplate, a golden breastplate that would be put on. It's not really meant to be thought of as a monument necessarily, but it does seem confusing here because it says it's been placed or put in the city in verse 27. So either way, the the item becomes uh, an item of pagan worship, And perhaps it's a garment draped over another 
item of golden worship, or perhaps it is both the item and the breastplate of golden worship that are put at the same time. Either way, it would stand as a newly erected and reconstructed shrine to Baal. Previously torn down by Gideon, he now erects it and puts it up again. Here now, one of Israel's own leaders brings pagan worship back into the place, into his place of worship before the cycle of judges is even over. Worshiping God only seems to be relevant for him when all else is lost. But he and we also seek to build our own kingdom when we get to determine what we want to worship. Think today, what is the state of affair in your life? Are you amidst a storm or a battle, seeking God to deliver you and thus devoting your life to him? Or perhaps you're doing so well that you have no longer a need to worship the divine father. And you set up for yourself that which you worship in your own city. This object becomes a snare to Gideon, becomes a snare to his family. We must be keen to acknowledge that which snares us in our lives. Verse 27, all of Israel worshiped the ephod, and although, verse 28, Midian was subdued, they raised their heads no more, denoting this time of peace for the following generation, and the land begins to rest. God is not alone being worshiped here. He is not even being mentioned. Gideon writes down uh, the story of his own life here and makes his own path as we continue to read in verses 29 to 35. His family follow in his unholy footsteps, and we see that God alone is the true judge despite Gideon's work. Verse 29, Drubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. He and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Derubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Gideon, or to Israel. Gideon now returns to his home capital. Uh, he uses the word here in Hebrew to have sat on his own enthronement, which is showing again that he is the one enthroning himself when he returns to his capital city, even though he's rejected the kingship. And again, he's called derubable by the writers here because the balls, the ball gods are the ones that are winning so they're not going to even call him by his name. They're going to call him Drubbabal. He has many wives and sons. He dies, and his family bears witness to the consequences of breeding disunity and how it has affected their community. The people of Israel turn against his family, against the, the Lord, and they worship the Baal gods again. Gideon grows his family with his own offspring. He also has an illegitimate son named Abimelech, from a concubine from Shechem. Much more is to come next week on Abimelech in chapter 9, because that whole chapter will show the rise and the fall of his son Abimelech. We see in verse 33 here that Gideon's death and fate as an ungodly ruler of Israel now shows all of Israel turning away from the Lord. They turn back to the Baal gods here at Baal Berith, 
Baal Berith is the name of a specific deity here, and that's translated as God of the Covenant. Little g, God of the Covenant. We see this again in chapter 9, Baal Berith. It's a Canaanite mythological god, specifically of the storm and the warrior deity that we've talked about before, and it's lord and master for them providing provision. So this is in stark contrast to the Lord's covenant with Israel and his promise to protect them. However, Israel enjoys 40 years of rest now with the storm and warrior God watching over them. Oh, how quickly we see God's time of blessing and of peace as an opportunity to turn back to sin. Gideon is not the judge that God called him to be, for no earthly judge is. God alone is the true judge. We ought to praise him for Gideon's early faithfulness, and we ought to mourn with God in his disobedience and not seek to repeat Gideon's cycle. If you go back to verse 28, I want to talk again about that days of rest, 40 years of rest the land would have here. Gideon is the last of the major judges that will see uh, a result of their uh, obedience, any years of rest. The, year, the, the land will not rest again. And we need to be quick to think that in a time of rest, a time of God's blessing, that our dabbling in sin, even though it doesn't come with an immediate consequence, doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean it's just, and punishment will come. So for the kids here today, and even us for us adults, often we're told that when we Uh, are living our lives, God sees what you do, and he knows what you're thinking, and he knows what is in your heart in the darkest moments of, of the room. And yet, when we do things wrong, we don't always see immediate punishment come from that. And it leads us to think that, well, maybe there's not such a swift punishment for doing things wrong in secret. Rather, I submit you to, submit to you today that sin creeps in And you will, we will face the punishment for our sins, and all of our future generations will face the punishment for our sins. There will be a price to be paid. We may think that a little uh, uh, debt in the wrong way is okay, just a little bit. Or we may think that just a little little bit of inappropriate or provocative media is okay. Or we might think that just a little bit of the test of marriage before we've made our vows is okay. But sin is sin. For as Gideon turned away from the Lord, in his end, he pursues his own kingdom building, his own self-promotion, and each judge, just as we are today, will face temptations and we will seek to concern ourselves with selfish living and the enemy now will come from within. We must ask, where is the hope now? Disunity and kingdom building for yourself destroys community. People will rise up with accusations due to poor communication. We will often seek to cast judgment on others when we don't know the whole story. We unknowingly welcome selfishness and pride into our own lives, and it will take root in our hearts. And when we become addicted to it, that community will collapse and anger will come against one another. Christ Jesus, however, brings hope. He is our shepherd who will guide us and fold us into his flock. 
We are seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. Put to death today your worldly idols and your worldly possessions and seek to worship the true king who has come to redeem the world. Dedicate your life to him today. Let him rule over you. Seek not the building of your own kingdom, but seek the kingdom building of God and seek the one who raised him from dead, from the dead and brings forgiveness of life through Jesus Christ. A few applications for us to take away by uh, in order this morning. The first uh, from the first set of verses. There is a good lesson here regarding how quick we will seek to judge others. God alone judges the heart, and we must lay down our understanding and our will to seek God's. Just like the men of Ephraim judged Gideon's actions, we can often spread accusations by way of backhanded compliments, by way of gossip, by way of face-to-face aggression. We accuse others when we don't have all the information. Know that this type of living will bring and breed disunity in community, and it will destroy relationships. So perhaps you have a friend in whom you falsely accused, and now you have a broken relationship. Perhaps you've misjudged your child or adult child's decisions by laying out silent accusations, and now you're losing an opportunity to be a part of their lives or the lives of your grandchildren. Perhaps you're the one who has been accused. In each situation, we must ask, where is the hope now? Christ alone has the power to reunite that which is broken. Psalm 37, 17 through 20 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all, and he keeps all his bones, not one of them broken. Trust in the Lord today. The second section, uh, God alone sustains And sometimes that sustaining comes from using the tools that God has given you and using them well. The men of Succoth withheld supplies of bread from Gideon's army. Are there times that we have withheld items of need from someone else or have been restricted ourselves when we are being withheld from? How can we survive if we cannot nourish ourselves? How can we live in honor to God if we withhold from others unjustly? God alone sustains. We need to rely on him for all of our needs. It may not come in the way that we think it ought to come or the way that we want it to come, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, verses 17 and 18 says, For this light and momentary affliction, which is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is hope found in Jesus Christ. This is also why the church community is so crucial. Those who commit to and submit to one another act as one body, serve and support one another. The third section, Gideon allows the Lord to rule over the people, yet he sought to worship other gods and this golden ephod. Do we do the same? Perhaps, perhaps we come to church on Sunday into the holy place of God, we proclaim that he is the true king over our lives, and then spend the rest of our week building up for ourselves our own kingdom, worshiping the gods of work, of school, and of money. 
not putting God first in our priorities, ruins the rest of them, and all the relationships in them will be skewed. In God's eyes, how do we look at family and church and community? This week, a small task for you, take a sheet of paper out and put the seven days of the week and simply mark down just by hours how much time you spend at various tasks. How long are you at work? Do you do your hobbies, your leisure, or at church? And then at the end of the week, compare how many times you've invited God to participate in those items with you. The things that you, that you spend the most time in will consume you and consume your worship if you don't invite God into it solely to please him. And number five, or number four, finally, God alone is the true king and disunity and kingdom building for yourselves destroys community. Relationships are destroyed and judgments are cast. Gideon fought bravely, yet chose to walk away from God, and his legacy will pay the price. His family is falling apart, his community is falling apart, and the second he's no longer alive, everyone turns against what he has done and he's put in place. They turn against his family. What steps are we taking today to plan for the success of those around us? Do we train up our children in the admonition of the Lord? Do we teach our coworkers or our employees what faithful service and devotion looks like? Do we support and participate in this local church, seeking to be rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, and making disciples? Where is the hope now? Christ alone brings hope. Lay down your worldly idols and worship the true King. Judges chapter 8 today, a lesson... <clears throat> Of you, uh, you've seen of what doing right in your own eyes will profit. Seek not the kingdom building of your own, but the kingdom building of God. And seek the one who was raised from the dead and brings forgiveness of sin. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us destroy the worldly idols of power and possession and prestige. Lord, that you'd help us destroy them and, and tear them down, not to be built up again. Lord, may you find us faithful in that work, that we would participate in your local church, that we would participate in personal worship. Lord, that we would not fall again to the sins that have so beset Gideon here, that the enemy is within, Lord, and Satan roams around like a lion seeking to devour. Lord, let us put your word in front of us. Let us dedicate our lives to you, Christ who has died on the cross, to pay a penalty that we could not pay. Lord, you've offered forgiveness of sin if we trust in you. Let us place that trust in you and seek your kingdom building. We thank you for it and ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen.